about a year ago, just through a series of, of events and just deep spiritual moments uh, that I had with the Lord, the Lord began to call me and just place a burden on my heart around the reverence of God, uh, more commonly known in scripture as the fear of the Lord. Uh, and, and, and this is a, a concept that I believe has just been almost completely and utterly ignored in the modern American church, especially in the Western church. Uh, I believe that this is so undiscussed uh, and so um, hidden beneath so much legalism and so much religion. And I believe that the fear of the Lord, as you'll see by the end of the message today, is one of the most dominant, most powerful, most beautiful, good things that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And that when we know this and when we learn this and we begin to walk in this, there are countless promises and blessings attached to those who walk in the fear of the Lord. Uh, and, and today, I've got one goal. I, I just felt like the Lord just was so clear with me in his word that the heart of what we want to do today is when we leave here, that every single person, no matter their background and no matter where they are in their walk with Christ, that we would leave here in one heart, one mind, one accord, knowing that the fear of the Lord is something that is beautiful and vital in our lives. And I want us to go on a journey, literally, from Genesis to Revelation. One of the things that I think that people uh, forget sometimes is that the Bible is not just a book, but it is a library of books. And that it is made up of, of two major sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that within these two major sections, there are, there are different pieces of knowledge and wisdom and power that God has given us that makes up the fullness of the knowledge of God. And what I want us to see here as we go through these scriptures today is I want us to see that the fear of the Lord was so vital and so important to God and so good for his people through every single aspect of scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. There are a lot of people in the room, you may have no idea what the fear of the Lord actually is. It's something you're unfamiliar with. It's something you've never heard taught, never heard preached. There's people in the room uh, that, that you've gone to church all your life, you've studied the scripture all your life, and you're kind of aware of the fear of the Lord, but you've never realized, it's just, uh, uh, it's just eluded you of how vitally important it is right here and right now for New Testament, New Covenant believers. In fact, there is a lot of people who preach, and I've heard this preached and taught, uh, that the fear of the Lord is an Old Testament concept, and that, that once Christ came and he died for our sins, that the fear of the Lord, the way that it's presented in the Old Testament, no longer applies or is important for a New Testament believer. And I just have to say up front, that is more wrong than I could ever express. And, I, and everyone will know that by the end of the message today. And what I want to do is I just want to go through and I want us to see in every facet of Scripture, every breakdown of Scripture, how important the fear of the Lord is to God and how much God believes it is a beautiful, good thing for us. And so I'm, I'm, I want to give you just two disclaimers this morning. I'm not really going to teach these Scriptures. I, I want us to look and to see the, the activity of the fear of the Lord and how important and vital it is. But I'm not going to have time to break down each of these scriptures like I normally do every week. But most of these scriptures are going to come into play throughout the messages in this series. And almost all of the scriptures that we're going to read today are going to be taught in depth and detail through the course of this series. But the journey today 
is just for us to see when we leave here that the fear of the Lord is something that we need to pray for. And there is a prayer that I've already been praying for my life, for my family, and for you guys. And I want us as a church family to pray this prayer every day through the course of this series, that the Holy Spirit would teach us what the fear of the Lord is, and two, that the Holy Spirit would impart or give us the fear of the Lord that we could walk in it. And so I wanna start today, and this is gonna be a little different than normal, but I want us to see this. I wanna start in Genesis. This is the first book of the Bible. I wanna start with Abraham. This is the first time the term, the fear of the Lord, shows up directly. And I think that this is such a vital part of the story and of the journey as we go about the fear of the Lord because this is something as God is establishing for the first time uh, the nation of Israel are establishing his people that eventually brings about the promised Messiah, the Savior, who we know to be Jesus. And he raises up this man, Abraham, uh, who was a great man of faith and believes God. After God engages with him, he believes God and he trusts God and he puts his faith in God. And the Bible teaches us that it was attributed to him as righteous because he believed and he trusted God and God's word. And, and in this journey, God begins to teach Abraham about the fear of the Lord. This is one of the first and major things that God does in the life of Abraham. And he does this to establish, not just in Abraham's life, and not just for Abraham's family, and not just for Israel, but for all men and women of God, I believe that he took his time and he did this to teach all of history how important and how vital the fear of the Lord is. And so uh, there was this, there came a time, God promised Abraham that he would give him a nation, that he would give him a, a, a people that, that numbered the stars in the sky, and that this would all start with one son named Isaac. But then later on in Isaac's life, God told Abraham to go and lay down his life, to literally take the life of his son as an act of sacrifice and an act of worship. And Abraham believes wholeheartedly in the goodness of God. And he knew, the Bible says, that if God fully makes me go through with this, he said, I believe God is so good and so powerful that he would raise my son from the dead. This is how much Abraham trusts the Lord. And so Abraham, in his faithfulness and his trust of God, takes Isaac up on a mountain, and right before he, he goes through with this, this act that God asked of him, God stops him, because God would never require something like that of his people. In fact, he says later on, it was never even a thought, but that he was doing this dramatic moment in the life of Abraham, in the life of Isaac, at the beginning of his engagement with the earth and with the people of the earth to show them how vital and how important the fear of the Lord truly is. And so right as Abraham's about to, to take the life of his son, God stops him, and this is what God says. Genesis 22, verse 12. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So I'm not gonna have time to go into the depth on all these scriptures like I did this one, but it's so important that we realize and that we see that one of the first things that God wanted to establish, not just in the life of Abraham, but the life of his people, anyone claiming to be a man or a woman of God, anyone claiming to believe and trust and follow God, he wanted to establish 
that the fear of God, the reverence of God, the honor of God was a full part of their life. This proves to us that this was important to God and that God believed that it was a good and powerful thing for his people to have, to know, and to walk in the fear of the Lord. Now, I think this one's so important because this is the beginning. This was day one of God's plan, and he establishes this. But if you were with us in the last series, we went through the life of Moses, the By Faith series, and we got to see how God freed the people of Israel from Egypt and brought him out to himself, that God desired to be in the presence of his people and for his people to be in his presence. And three months after that, God, after he sets them free from Egypt, God comes down on a mountain. He sends his, his literal a manifest, full glory, full presence down on this mountain to introduce himself to his people because he wanted them to have a close, intimate relationship with him. And they got to see the fullness of his presence. They actually didn't even get to see his presence. They got to see the cloud and the fire and the smoke that, that shielded his presence. That's how pure and how powerful God's presence really is, but they got to hear his voice and it was like thunder. And as God came down, the Bible actually teaches us why God did that. Why God, when he was establishing his relationship with Israel and he was establishing his relationship with the people and he was establishing the future of what it would mean to be a man and a woman of God, this is what God said his point was, was to give them the fear of the Lord. I want to show you this. In Abraham 22, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in Exodus uh, 21, Abraham is not a book of the Bible. Don't go search for that one. Just a slip of the tongue. Exodus 20, verse 21 through 21. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, I'm not gonna go into this because we're actually gonna come back to this scripture at the end of this message to establish the unhealthy fear that God doesn't want and the holy, healthy fear that God does want in our lives. But what we see again, as God comes down from heaven, this is one of the only times that God does this in all of history, but God came down from heaven to establish himself as father and as king and as God of his people. And the reason that Exodus 20, the reason the Bible says that God did this was to put the fear of God in the people that they might not sin. So we see that when he established his plan from day one in the life of Abraham, one of the first things that he taught and put in the heart of Abraham was the fear of the Lord. And when he established and reestablished the people of Israel and engaged with them here on the mountain, he did it for the sole purpose of putting the fear of the Lord in their heart because of how important it is to God and how good God knows it is for our life and our heart. So we see it at the beginning with Abraham. We see it with the reestablishment of his people in Israel after they freed him from Egypt. And now I want to go to the law. The law uh, in the Bible is literally, it's God's righteousness put down on paper. It's what the right way of living. It's what is good and, and wise and righteous in life. And he, he wrote it down, starting with the Ten Commandments, going all the way down to dietary restrictions in the Old Testament for the for the. Uh, people of Israel. And what we've kind of learned as science has caught up, every single thing, even things that didn't even make sense in the law for thousands of years, science showed up and said, oh, you know what? It's actually really wise and good to do that. 
This is how beautiful, how pure the law of God truly is. But I wanna show you in, in Deuteronomy 10, because my heart here is I want you to see that the fear of the Lord is dominant and vital in every single aspect and part of Scripture. Not just one place, not just another place, but in every single place. We see it in the establishment of Abraham. We see it in the reestablishment of Moses and the people of Israel. And now I wanna show you in the law, Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13, it says this, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So we could go through many aspects of the law and see the fear of the Lord present and active. But right here, I think it's so telling and so vital that we see that as God gives us the law, as God gives the people of Israel the law in the Old Testament, that before it says walk in his ways, before it says to even love him, before it says to serve him, before it says to uh, go with all your heart and to keep the commandments and the statutes, before it says to obey him, it says, what does God require of you before all of those things? To fear the Lord your God. I fundamentally believe, and we'll get into this later in this series, you cannot love God if you don't fear him. Because if you don't fear him, then you don't truly believe and know in your heart of hearts how great and how powerful and how majestic and how beautiful and how wise he truly is. The reason the fear of the Lord comes before all of these things, because it's the fear of the Lord that turns our hearts away from evil and wickedness and into the things of God. So I want you to see that even in the law, the fear of the Lord was a requirement in the Old Testament, that this was a vital part of walking with God and being a man and a woman of God. We see it at the beginning with the life of Abraham. We see it with the reestablishment of Israel after Egypt with Moses and the people as God came down. We see it clearly in the law. Now, I wanna to move to what many call the wisdom literature. There's three books of the Bible. Wisdom is found all throughout scripture, but there's three books of the Bible, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon that are called the wisdom literature because they're all wisdom. They're the wisdom of God, the wisdom of life, and the wisdom that God gives us this wisdom that we can live in a wise way on earth. And Solomon wrote the vast majority of the wisdom literature, and what he didn't write, he pieced together and put together for us at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. In fact, it said, when it comes to wisdom, there was nobody like him before him and there would never be anybody like him again. That makes Solomon the wisest man who has ever lived who or, or who will ever live. And after all of his wisdom and all of his life and all of the things that he studied and all of the things that he accomplished and all of the things that he did at the end of Ecclesiastes, uh, he comes to this one piece and he says, after it's all said and done, he said, I'm gonna tell you the whole duty of man. And I wanna read this to you. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. It says, the end of the matter is this. All has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon says, and the Bible teaches us, in all wisdom, when it's all said and done, 
when you look out and you look at the earth and you look at the world and you look at humanity and you look at society and you look at this through the lens of wisdom, he says, I'm gonna tell you when it's all said and done, the end of the matter is this, the whole duty of man is to fear the Lord God and to obey his commandments. So we see it in the life of Abraham. We see it in the reestablishment of the people of Israel with Moses when he came down on the mountain. We see it as a requirement in the law. And we see that wisdom says the whole duty of man is to fear God. Now, I want to go to the prophets just in case there's anybody in the room who's, who still thinks, man, it's not everywhere. It's not in every aspect. It's not as dominant as acting like I just, I'm just not sure I get it yet. I'll, let's just keep going. Let's go to the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, these were major prophets of God who, who led the entire nation of Israel during certain seasons. And all throughout the major prophets, you see the fear of the Lord. You see references to the fear of the Lord. You see references to reverence. You see, you see this as a conviction. You see this as a charge. You see this as a command. You see this as God's heart calling his people back to him. But there's one scripture in Isaiah 11, one through three, that I think is so powerful on several different levels. Because Isaiah 11 is, is part of the major prophets. And as he's teaching the people of Israel, several times God gives him prophecies about the Messiah whom we know to be Jesus. And Isaiah 11, one through three is a messianic prophecy. It's, it's, it's God ahead of time teaching the people of Israel what the Messiah will be like and how the spirit of the living God will work on and within the Messiah. And so we get to see several aspects of power when it comes to the fear of the Lord here in Isaiah 11, one through three. And I wanna read this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We know that to be Jesus. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might or strength and power, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. But then verse three says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So what this is teaching us is that as the Holy Spirit rests upon Jesus, as we see that take place at Jesus' baptism in the early parts of the gospel, Isaiah's prophesying at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit will impart to Jesus these things, wisdom and counsel and knowledge and might, strength and power, understanding and the fear of the Lord. And out of all of those things that the Holy Spirit would give or impart to the life of Jesus, the son of the living God, that Jesus would not delight in the wisdom he wouldn't delight in the counsel. He wouldn't delight in the understanding or the knowledge. And he wouldn't even delight in the might or the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit. But what he chose is his delight, what he delighted in, what he enjoyed, and what he cared for more than all of the rest was the fear of the Lord. This is one of the most dominant and vital scriptures we'll look at multiple times through this series. Because what this tells us is that the Holy Spirit is the source of the true fear of the Lord, that he imparts and gives it, but that Jesus valued it and delighted in it more than wisdom, knowledge, strength, and power. So kind of what you see in different aspects of the church, there's some parts of the church, they crave wisdom and knowledge. 
They consider themselves smarter than everybody else. Doctrinal churches, that, that they, they push it. There's other sections of, of God's church. They want the manifestations of the Holy Spirit more than anything else. They want the power and they want the miracles and they want all this and, and that's what they make church all about. But the thing that we need to see is that when it comes to Jesus's view of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, he did not care for any of those things more than he did the fear of the Lord. That means that we should stop for a second and think about if we know this, if we've studied the Bible enough and we know all of the works of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, that we should see that of all of those things that we've prayed for and all of those things that we've asked for and all of those things that we chase and all of those things that we cry out for, that the thing that Jesus delighted in the most wasn't those things, but that it was the fear of the Lord. Yet the fear of the Lord is one of the most undiscussed and ignored topics in all of the Bible. I believe as, the, as we go through this, you'll begin to see why the American church is not as powerful as we could be. I want you to keep, I want to keep going in this. I want to go to Malachi. This is a minor prophet. Right, this is what some call the minor prophets. These, these were uh, men uh, that God raised up for a short amount of time to call his people back to himself. And the book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. After God sends Malachi to speak to his people, God doesn't speak again for 400 years. That makes me want to pay special attention to what the book of Malachi is about. And if you go through and you study the whole book of Malachi, and it's really short, you could read it all in one sitting. The book of Malachi and what God sent Malachi the prophet to, to bring the charge and the conviction to the people of Israel was that they lacked the fear of God. That's almost what the whole part of Malachi is about. Malachi steps into the scene and he begins to, to, early on, he begins to take charge of the people and he begins to tell them that they have no respect and no reverence and no fear of God. In fact, he goes down and he says, you treat your governors with more respect than you treat the God who created you, the God who saved you, and the God who holds eternity in your hand. He begins to ask them questions. He said, if your governor shows up, would you not treat him better than you treat God? If, if Malachi were to show up in modern times and he were to step into the American church, it would be something like this. Don't you treat your human employer, your human boss, better than you actually treat God? Don't you have more reverence and respect for the presence of your boss or the presence of your favorite politician or the presence of your favorite entertainer or the presence of your favorite sports figure? Don't you have more real awe and more real fear and more real reverence and more real respect for them if they came in the room than you ever do for God? He says like you would never walk in if your boss called you into his office and you had a meeting set for nine o'clock, you would not dare be late to that meeting, would you? because you have more reverence and respect for him than you do God. He said, you wouldn't be on your phone while the boss is giving you the directions. You wouldn't just pass them off like they're optional, would you? Right, so he's breaking down the people of Israel and he's, he's getting into their day-to-day -day lives and he's trying to prove to them, listen, that you don't, because they were confused. Because Malachi would come in and say these things, and they're like, well, how do we do that? How do we not fear the Lord? And then Malachi would give them all these examples to prove to them and bring this conviction to their life. This was the heart of God calling his people back to the fear of the Lord. God understands something that you and I forget, that God is a holy, holy, holy God. 
that God is the greatest being in the universe, that God is the one who created everything that you will ever see, know, or discover, that God stands outside of time and he holds eternity in his hands, that there is no greater being than the God of the universe and the God who created us and the God who saved us. And God is so holy that he can only be treated as holy. And so that when he is in a situation where he's not being treated as holy, instead of killing you, he leaves. This is what we see in the book of Malachi. God gives them an opportunity and a chance to begin to revere him and to begin to honor them in their lives and begin to have respect for him and, and, and to fear him. But the vast majority of them reject this. God doesn't speak again for 400 years. That should tell us something deep about the fear of the Lord. But what I wanna show you in the book of Malachi is in Malachi 3.16, near the end. Because although Malachi preached and prophesied uh, at the voice of the Lord that, and tried to bring the people back to the fear of the Lord and bring the people back to have real reverence for him and bring the people back to truly respect and honor him and worship him in their lives, the vast majority didn't and rejected him. But there were a few who did. There were a few who heeded the words and there were a few who humbled themselves before the Lord and they began to fear him once again. And what I want you to see is God's response to the few who feared the Lord. Malachi 3.16, it said, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, meaning they got together and they began to say, Malachi's right. And I know that most people are rejecting him but he's right. We've lost the fear of the Lord. We've lost the reverence for God. We don't treat him with respect. And we want to be able to move back in this. So they begin to discuss this. Then this is what God does in response to them beginning to fear him again and have reverence for him again. It says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So I want you to understand the deep spiritual reality that just took place. God sent Malachi to bring a conviction and a charge to bring the people back to reverence, to bring the people back to the fear of the Lord. Most rejected it, and God didn't speak to them again for 400 years. But a few accepted it, repented, and began to fear the Lord again. And it says that the Lord paid special attention to them and he heard them. And then he had an angel write their names down in a book because God knew that he wasn't gonna speak for 400 more years until John the Baptist and Jesus showed up. But God said, because those who feared me began to fear me again, I want you to write their names down because I'm gonna pay attention to them and I'm gonna remember them now and forever. That is how much the fear of the Lord means to God. That is how much God wants the fear of the Lord in your life. That is how beautiful and good the fear of the Lord is, that he remembers those who fear him, write their names down so that he can have a special list of people who he pays attention to more than those who don't fear and don't revere him. Now, I just said something that's epically powerful, and later in this series, we'll get into the depths of that, but that right there terrify me to my soul. I want to be somebody written down in that book. I want to be somebody who fears the Lord. I want to be somebody who God remembers. Amen? Amen? Now, that's the Old Testament. That's the end of the Old Testament. Most people, 
who have an idea of the fear of the Lord, they believe that it stops right there. They believe that it has no place in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And for the next few minutes, I'm gonna prove you dead wrong. I wanna go to Luke 1, and I meant that as a challenge. When you're wrong, you're wrong, get over it. Luke 1, 46 through 50, this is Mary, the mother of Jesus, praising God for him working in her life. This is what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, on all generations will call him blessed, will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The way that's written in the Greek, that means that that statement in verse 50, that is true now and forever. That never stops being true. She commends those who fear the Lord. She commends those who fear him and say that mercy is meant for those who fear the Lord from generation to generation. It's something that never changes. I believe that this is God's holy inspiration, wisdom, and power to put this in Luke chapter one, the beginning of the gospels, so that we can see that the fear of the Lord is still commended and still commanded even in the New Testament. I wanna move to Jesus in Matthew 10. Jesus himself commands us to fear the Lord and he gives you a very wise reason to do so. In Matthew chapter 10 and also in Luke, uh, Jesus begins to uh, tear down the religious leaders and their religious establishment and he's specifically attacking the hypocrisy of legalism of the religious leaders. And as he's kind of going through this, he begins to then speak to his disciples and tell them not to have any fear of those religious leaders or Rome or anyone else who could take their physical life. He says, but you need to save your fear and save your reverence and your honor for the one who holds eternity in his hands. And I want to read this to you. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 10, verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, Rather, fear him, God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He says, do not have an ounce of fear or reverence for any man or woman on this earth. Instead, save your fear, save your reverence, save that highest esteemed place in your heart for the one who holds eternity in his hands. This is Jesus, the son of the living God. I wanna keep going just in case you're not convinced. I wanna go to Acts 9. I want to look at the early church because in Acts 9, the scripture attributes the impact of the early church to the fear of the Lord. The thing that you need to understand about the impact of the early church is that from the day that Jesus left, there was a very small group of people who had their faith in Christ, a very small group of people that Jesus started and established his church. But it was only 300 years that that few people, those those few men and women who loved Jesus and believed Jesus and feared the Lord, that they presented themselves and lived their lives in so much power of the Holy Spirit that within just a few generations, the entire Roman Empire bowed its knee to Jesus Christ and declared the world, the Roman world, a Christian nation. 
That's how impactful and how powerful the early church was. And Acts 9 tells us why. Acts 9, 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, we know that walking in the fear of the Lord and comfort is both from the Holy Spirit because of Isaiah 11, that the Holy Spirit is what imparts or gives the fear of the Lord. I need you to understand that in our country right now, there are more Christians in America, people that say they're Christians in America right now than at almost any other point in history. We have more churches more buildings, more resources, more pastors coming out of seminary. We've got more education. We've got more books. We've got more of everything than we've ever had. Yet we have almost zero impact on the world. Why? Because we do not have a reverence and a fear for God. And because the Holy Spirit is just that, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not move where he is not treated with reverence and respect and awe. And when you have a church who gives more glory to pastors than they do God, and when you have a church that gives more glory and respect to their human bosses and football players and NBA players and rock stars than they do God, when you have an American church who it's optional when he speaks and what you obey, when you have an American church when, when the, the holiness of God is something that you don't revere or respect, the holiness of God, when it's ignored and when you treat him as common, this is what the Bible talks about, quenching the Holy Spirit and grieving the Holy Spirit. This is why we see at any point in time in history, when you had a church who feared God, the Holy Spirit moved in ways that's hard to believe. We need the fear of God more than we need another building, more than we need another seminary, more than we need another famous preacher. We need the fear of the Lord in the hearts of the people so the Holy Spirit will begin to move like he did in the days of the early church. Aren't you tired of playing church? Aren't you tired of cycling through all the different churches in small towns all over the country trying to find what's next? Aren't you tired of Christian consumerism? Isn't there some small part of every believer that looks into the Bible and goes, man, I would love to be a part of a true movement. I would love to be part of a true revolution. I would love to really see the Holy Spirit move like that. I would love it. Why, I'm telling you right here and right now, the reason God doesn't move like that is because God is only gonna move where he is revered and where he is feared. This is what the Bible teaches. If you disrespect God, he's not going to move in your life in the way that we see in scripture. But if we can humble ourselves before the Lord and begin to have a reverence for him and a fear for him, then we will see and experience an intimacy and a power that is written about in the history books. That's what I want. That's what we need. Just in case you're not convinced, I want to go to the letters. All right, this is, they're writing, this one's so important in Philippians 2.12. For all the people who, who like to stand up and use the air that God gave them to tell their people that he does no longer worthy of reverence and respect, that reverence and respect is only for the Old Testament. It's heresy, you're a false prophet and you're a false teacher and I need you to hear this in Philippians 2.12 through 13 because it's talking about the new covenant salvation. It says in Philippians 2.12 through 13, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? 
For it is God himself who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The thing that we miss is that we get to see this insane view of God in the Old Testament coming down on the mountain. We get to see the work of the Holy Spirit as he rests on people. But what Jesus Christ did for us when he died on the cross for our sins, his blood paid the price for us and he atoned our sins and he removed our sins from us so that now we could actually not see the presence of God from far off, but that we could be in the presence of God, that the Holy Spirit wouldn't just rest on us like in the Old Testament, but the Holy Spirit would dwell within us. And so he's trying to teach you, if you thought the fear of the Lord was important in the Old Testament, take a back seat. It's even more important in the New Testament because God's not just around you, he's in you. And it's God himself, the one that's working in you, in your salvation. So as you're going on your journey with God, you cannot think that God's up there somewhere and we're down here and one day we'll meet what the Bible teaches is that he died on a cross so that he could somehow in a way that's hard to comprehend dwell within you. It's the Holy Spirit of God that is working in you for his good will and his work and his good pleasure so that when you work on your salvation and you work out your relationship with God, he says, do it with fear and reverence and trembling because you're no longer working with a human high priest. You're working with the God of the universe. He said, if it's important in the Old Testament, it's even more important in the New Testament. Let's keep going. 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, the promises of what? The promises of the new covenant, the promises of the gospel, the promises of the New Testament scriptures, the promises of Jesus Christ. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Do you know in all of scripture, there is only one thing, and it says it multiple times, there is only one thing that will turn the human heart away from sin, evil, and wickedness. And it's the fear of the Lord. So it's no surprise to me when Paul's writing the Corinthian church and he's telling them to bring their holiness to completion, he says, do it in the fear and the reverence of God. 1 Peter 2, 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. This is Peter saying, as it says in multiple places in scripture, don't use the blood of Jesus as an excuse to have active sin in your life. Yes, there is always grace, and yes, there is always forgiveness, but don't use the cross as a license to sin. He says, this is evil and this is wicked. He said, instead, be a servant of God. And part of being a servant of God is honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29, Paul's breaking down the difference between Old Testament worship and New Testament worship. And for the same reasons that he wrote the Philippians about God being within us, he uses this same argument here and he says it's, yes, God came down on a mountain in the Old Testament. He even says this in Hebrews 12. He said, but he was far off. He said, you, you couldn't touch the mountain because of God's presence was on. He said, but now, not only can you touch the mountain, you can get into his presence. And he said, and so for this reason, Hebrews 12, 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That word reverence means holy fear, caution, 
That word awe in the Greek means timidness, caution, and fear. He says, if you wanna really worship God in an acceptable way, you cannot do it without the fear of the Lord, without reverence. I'm gonna go to Revelation 14. This is the last one. Revelation 14, six through seven. At the end of the age, uh, after I believe God has already pulled us from the earth, uh, everybody left on earth had rejected Christ up to this point. Many of them have probably already given their lives over to the Antichrist. But God in his great mercy, in his great love, even at that moment, at the last hour, in his mercy and love, he sends an angel to proclaim the gospel to everyone on the earth, to give them one more opportunity to be saved by the sacrifice of Jesus. So this angel comes to preach what he calls the eternal gospel. And I believe there's been some great human preachers. I believe the Spirit has worked mightily through people over the last 2,000 years. I think we've had great men and women of God, but I don't believe there's ever been a human being that would preach the eternal gospel better than an angel that God sent from heaven, amen? And I want you to see how this angel who left the throne of God to come to the earth to proclaim the eternal gospel, I want you to hear how he starts that statement. This is Revelation 14, six through seven. Then I saw another angel flying overhead with the eternal gospel to proclaim those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come Worship the one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. So I hope over the last few minutes you've seen from the very beginning as he established his relationship with humanity through Abraham, reestablished it in the desert with Israel, in the wisdom literature, in the major prophets, in the minor prophets, in the New Testament with Mary, the mother of Jesus, out of Jesus' own mouth, a commandment, out of the letters written to the churches, the commandment of the new covenant, worship in Hebrews 12, all the way to the end of the age in Revelation when God sends an angel, the fear of the Lord is something that is vital and important to God. And God believes is a beautiful and good thing for your life. And I wanna end with this. I wanna go back to Exodus 20 and I want us to see there are two types of fear. One is unhealthy, and unholy and it's caused by sin. And one is holy and healthy and imparted by the Holy Spirit. And we see this in Exodus 20, as God comes down on the mountain, the people become terrified and they begin to run from the presence of God. And this is what Moses said. We've already read this today. Moses said to the people, do not fear. That's the unhealthy fear. Do not run from the presence of God. Do not be afraid of him like that. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. This is the difference between unholy, unhealthy fear and holy, healthy fear. I wanna show you this in two ways. If you go back to Genesis and you see the life of Adam and Eve, they walked in the presence of God every single day for we don't know how long. It could have been 50 years or 50,000 years, we don't know. But the second that sin entered into their life and into the world, the first thing that they did was run from the presence of God. When they sinned, God came running to them. God came down to them and called out to them like his children to help them in their time of need. 
But when they heard the voice of the Lord, they were ashamed and they were terrified and they ran into the woods to hide from God. But God chased them down anyway. I want you to see that sin and only sin is the root of an unhealthy fear of God. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives the healthy holy fear. I wanna read this just as an introduction to this healthy holy fear. And then we'll end the message today. This is what the healthy, holy fear of God is. I just wanna read this to put it in our minds. And then we're gonna study this in depth over the next few weeks. What is the fear of the Lord? It's reverence for God. It's a reverential awareness of God in our lives every day. To fear the Lord is to be fully aware of his immediate presence in our lives and to live with a reverence in our heart towards him. To fear the Lord is to think of and treat God as holy, holy, holy. It is to know there is no greater being in the universe and then to treat him like that's true. It's to know that there's nothing more worthy than our God. There's nothing more worthy to live for. There's nothing more worthy to die for than the God who created us, saved us, and holds eternity in our hands. To fear the Lord is to live practically as if the God of the universe truly dwells within us, that his genuine, authentic presence is in our life and we are available to be able to enter into that presence in a real, genuine way. If the unhealthy fear of the Lord, I want you to listen to this. If the unhealthy, unholy fear of the Lord makes the human heart terrified to be in his presence, then the healthy, holy fear of the Lord makes you terrified not to be in his presence. This is why I believe Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord, because it makes God's presence so real. And we become so aware that we humble ourselves before him every day and we treat him as holy and we walk with him and before him. I believe that this is the message from God, not just to this church, but to his church all over the world. I believe that this is the message of God right now in this time of history. I believe he is calling his people back to the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord opens up a powerful, intimate relationship with him that you can't have without it. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will teach us the fullness of what the fear of the Lord is and that he will impart it into our life and that we will radically be blessed by this reality. And all of those promises, which we'll study later in the series, all the promises and the blessings that are attached to the fear of the Lord, that we will begin to experience those things in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our jobs, in our careers, in every aspect of our life. I believe that the Lord will radically do a work in us and I cannot wait to see it. And I beg of you, come on this journey with us.